In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do not want to be like Samson. Lord, but we are. So Lord, I would ask you please to help us that we would be those that are controlled by the Spirit and not the flesh. I pray, dear Lord, that our gaze would be fixed upon Jesus and that we would see our need for him. I pray, dear Lord, that we would strive to be like our Savior. Lord, I pray that we could learn from Samson. Uh, Help us today as we study. Be with me today as I preach. May I do so today, God, with joy. For, Lord, we are reading your word, and you are speaking to us today. Lord, this is a very solemn event. This is a very joyful event. Lord, please help us to respond appropriately through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Today we continue our study through the book of Judges, specifically looking at the most famous of the judges, and that is Samson. Now, the last time we were together, we looked at chapter 13, which talked about the birth announcement and the birth of Samson, um, in that God promised his parents, uh, before Samson was even born, that Samson would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Uh, if we want to put a time frame on this, Samson's life probably runs simultaneously with that of Abimelech and with Jephthah, about, I would say, about 50 years before the reign of Saul. Um, God also told the parents of Samson that the boy was to be a Nazarite for life. No strong drink, no unclean food, no haircuts. Uh, at the end of chapter 13, Samson is born in Zorah in the uh, tribe of Dan, close to the border of Judah, and the Spirit of God begins to stir him. Now, it's important that we note that the stirring of the Spirit of God and the movement of the Spirit of God in individuals in the Old Testament is different than that of the stirring or the uh, filling of the Spirit of God or the indwelling of the Spirit of God in believers in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would work in a specific individual for a temporary period of time for a specific purpose, usually dealing with something having to do with war or leadership. Whereas in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers permanently, and he equips us for service and sanctifies us unto holiness. So it is the same Holy Spirit, but he functions differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Well, um, what the stirring of the Spirit of God in the life of Samson uh, uh means becomes evident in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of Judges. But before we dig into chapters 14 and 15 today, and then, Lord willing, chapter 16 next week, the story of Samson and Delilah, uh, let me say something about the book of Judges as a whole. 
The book of Judges is repetitive in that there is a cycle of sin and suffering, supplication followed by salvation, solace, and then sin again. The book of Judges is rough. It is filled with sex and violence. It is rhetorical in that it is arranged thematically and it is written very artfully. And most importantly, the book of Judges is redemptive in that it illustrates the gospel time and time again, showing us how God is good to bad people. Well, today we have 40 verses in front of us. 20 in chapter 14 and 20 in chapter 15. Here's what I'm going to do today, Lord willing. I'm going to read the text, making observations as we go. Then I'm going to explain the text using a simple two-point outline, and those are point number one, the themes, and point number two, the schemes. But for now, let's just go through this passage verse by verse, because I think it is important that you know what the Bible says. Judges chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, that is about four miles from where he was raised, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, verses 2 and 3. Then he came up and told his his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Here's the attitude of Samson. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. What do we remind you of every week? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. She looked good to him, and that was all that matters. Verse 4, this is the most important verse that we will read today. It is the It is the heart behind the entire passage. Uh, If you get verse 4, you will get both of these chapters. If you miss verse 4, you will not understand both of these chapters. Here is verse 4. His father and mother did not know it, that is him chasing after this unsaved woman. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So you need to remember that it is, whatever whatever we're going to read today, it is the unseen hand of God that is actively at work throughout this entire story. Verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, paint a picture in your mind's eye, a young lion came roaring, came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So this is the first act of supernatural strength that Samson exercises. And what is important here 
is not why he did not tell his parents, but what is important is simply that he did not tell his parents what had happened. He is the only person that knows about this. For our purposes and for purposes of this story, it isn't important why he didn't tell his parents, simply that he did not tell his parents. Uh, Verse number seven. Then he went down and talked with the woman And she was right in Samson's eyes. She wasn't right. She wasn't good. She wasn't godly. She wasn't holy. She wasn't saved. She wasn't one of the people of God. However, she was right in Samson's eyes. And in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Verses 8 and 9. After some days, he returned to take her. Now, the marriage set up uh, that was going on here was an unusual marriage. Uh, we wouldn't do anything like this today, but that's this is how they would do things in those days. She was not going to move out of her father's house. He would just come and visit her from time to time. He would stay with his parents. He would come to be with her from time to time. That's what the arrangement was at that time. But first of all, you need to have a ceremony, and usually the ceremony would last seven days. And so it says, after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, paint a picture in your mind's eye. There was a swarm of bees in the body of the in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave them some, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Very interesting here. Uh, first of all. This honey that was in the lion would be unclean. It would be ceremonially unclean because it is touching a dead body. Once again, his parents know nothing of the source of this honey. Uh, Unwittingly, they are ceremonially defiled by eating this unclean food. And that was something that a Nazarite was not supposed to do. But here's the key. Samson doesn't care. He is a law unto himself. The key to understanding Samson is to understand that he doesn't care. There are no rules. He is unrestrained. He simply does not care. By the way, what tribe is Samson from? from the tribe of Dan. And so when he came to the lion, reached in, took the honey, it could be said that it is Samson in the lion, Dan. Not funny, but clever, but clever. Back to Samson. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him who he hurts or what he does. Uh, this past uh, week, my son Charlie and his family were visiting with us, and I had told his son Rowan, please don't jump on the furniture. Um, Rowan decided, however, at some point during the evening to crawl over the back of the sofa. When he did, the, 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 the sofa moved. When the sofa moved, Rowan didn't know that his little brother was on the floor below the the sofa, uh, his jumping over the sofa and jumping onto it actually knocked his younger brother Noble over. Noble begins to cry. I don't think Noble was hurt. In fact, I think it is impossible for Noble to be hurt. Another sermon for another day. But, but 
Rowan has to go then in the bedroom to await his punishment, and as he goes in, he's sitting on the bed, and he is crying. Why is he crying? He's not crying because he is about to be punished. He's crying because he realized, even though it was not on purpose, he realized that he had hurt his brother. Samson doesn't care who he hurts. Samson has no feelings for other people. He doesn't obey his parents. He doesn't care if he defiles himself ceremonially. He doesn't care if he marries an unsaved woman. He doesn't care if he defiles his parents ceremonially. You need to understand when you read Samson, Samson doesn't care at all about anything except himself. Notice what happens as the wedding proceeds in verses 10 and 11. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, uh, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, uh, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, we don't know if this was Cultural. We don't know if this is just uh, a, a large uh, exhibition of hospitality. We don't know if those guys were there to protect the family against Samson. We don't know. But that is a very large number of groomsmen. Most I've ever seen at a wedding is 10. Here you have 30 guys, presumably that Samson doesn't even know, and they are the groomsmen for his wedding. We're just not really sure of the uh, ancient Near East cultural ramifications of how a wedding was supposed to be done, but be that as it may, here are these 30 guys that are assigned to him, verses 12 through 14. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you, if you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Verse 13, but if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, here's the riddle, out of the eater came something to eat, Out of the strong came something sweet, and in three days they could not solve the riddle. They are baffled. Uh, As we see in our English Bible, the words eat and sweet rhyme. That is purely coincidental because this is Hebrew poetry. Uh, Samson was not writing in English. He was not quoting poems in English. That is just coincidental, and it's very handy that we that we have that. But that is not that is not uh, uh, something that is rhyming purposely. Verses verse fifteen. On the fourth day. They said to Samson's wife, they realized they're they're not going to get this on their own, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? In other words, we see what is happening here. The reason why we were invited to this wedding is so that you could rob us. This is a con man, and really this is just going to cost us a lot because people in those days actually would have uh, only one or two changes of clothes, and if they had to give one up, uh, that, that would be very, very expensive. Verses 16 and 17. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you, you only hate me. Uh, you do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. 
And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? It, 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 that, is, that is very interesting. You, you see, remember, he didn't tell his parents that he killed the lion. He didn't tell his parents where the honey had come from. And now he says to his wife, you expect me to tell you when I haven't even told my parents? Verse 17, she wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her why, because she pressed him hard. Then she went behind his back and told the riddle to her people. Samson's weakness uh, was women. And we see this reoccurring time and time again in the book of Judges that a woman overcomes a man, whether it is jail putting a tent peg through the head of Sisera or whether it is a certain woman with a millstone dropping it on the head of Abimelech or whether it is this woman or whether it is Delilah who's going to get Samson in the same way in the next chapter. The women frequently are overcoming the men in the book of Judges. Why in the world does he tell her the secret? We don't know. I mean, it it is obviously very unwise. Mark Twain put it this way. Two people can keep a secret as long as one of them is dead. His secret was not safe with her. He thinks, however, it is safe to mingle among the Canaanites, to mingle among the Philistines, to get close to them, to confide in them. Hang on to that thought. Obviously, it was not safe because she betrayed him. Verse 18, verse 18. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. All right, several things are at play here. First of all, they know what the answer is. They are acting as if they are about to lose the bet. And as the day is coming to an end, just as the sun is about to go down, Samson in his heart is celebrating, I've got these guys and I'm going to get 30 changes of clothes. And boom, right before the sun goes down, they solve the riddle, okay? And Samson's response, um, uh, and I will not go into the details, but his response in what is now his second poem that we see uh, is actually a vulgar one, and it's, it's actually very coarse. I've warned you from time to time, the book of Judges is, is rough. Well, this uh, wording that Samson gives is 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 very rough in mixed company. I will not explain it, but if you want to go find a good Bible commentary and uh, satisfy your curiosity, he is furious and he fires this vulgar poem at them, which brings us to nineteen. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, that is 23 miles away. Why did he go 23 miles away? Well, he went 23 miles away so that there would not be any kind of uh, connection that would be drawn between these people uh, and, the, and, the, and the garments that were needed. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, that's a town in, uh, in, among the Philistines along the coastline. He struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. He, he, he wasn't playing around now. He is an 
angry, out-of-control man. Verse 20, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. That is not an insignificant verse. That is a very significant verse. The reason that the father would give away the daughter is because all of the preparations for the wedding had come about, and what was happening here, it would be a shame to go through all of that and then not have your daughter married off. And so in order to save face, this father marries off his daughter to the next guy in line, Samson's best man whom he didn't even know, which moves us into verse chapter 15. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, which would be late May, early June, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Now, this is not like a peace offering. This isn't like, hey, sorry about what happened. I'm going to bring you a goat. No, this would be a normal relationship between a husband and wife in that kind of a marital setup. He would show up every once in a while Uh, just to have his needs met or to spend a little bit of time with her. And he would, as part of their marriage, he'd, he'd bring something for her and the family to eat. So he brings a young goat. And he said, this is the reasoning that he has within his own mind, I will go into my wife in the chamber. In other words, he is lonely for love and he is pursuing it now with a woman that he thinks that he's married to. But her father would not allow him to go in. No, you can't go see her. Why not? Verse 2. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave, because you stormed off in anger. So what did I do? I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And so The father is trying to appease Samson because I think in some way he probably fears him and says, listen, I've got another daughter and she's better looking than the one that you wanted to marry. Do you want her? Verse three through five. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Unbelievable. This guy is angry. He wants to get vengeance because his wife has been given away. And so he goes out and he catches 300 foxes. Now, some commentaries say that the word for fox is the same as the word jackal. It could be jackals. Uh, some say it is more likely that it is jackals because jackals run in uh, packs. Foxes go by themselves. I say it is completely irrelevant. This is not something that someone could do without supernatural assistance. Do you know how long it would take one man to catch 300 foxes to do this? This is something which was divine. Uh, The Lord assisted him in doing it. It was extremely creative, and it was excessively cruel. He wiped out their groceries, and he tortured these animals in the process. Uh, Verse 6, verse 6. 
Then the Philistines said, who has done this? Now notice, now it is the Philistines. It's not just the people of, of, of Timnah where this uh, particular woman lived. But now this is sort of like the federal government saying, and then the Philistines says, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite. If they themselves were the people of Timnah, they would have not called this man the Timnite, for they themselves would be Timnites. So again, this is kind of like the federal government saying this, because he has taken his wife and given him given her to his companion. Samson is mad because that guy who lives over in Timnah gave away his daughter to another man. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson has burned our fields. Now what we're going to do is we're going to burn you and your dad. It burned both of them alive. Verses seven and eight. And Samson said to them, to the Philistines. If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged. Hang on to that word, avenged. His motive is revenge. I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. But it's going to be an eye for an eye. I'm just not going to go crazy here, but it's going to be an eye for eye. And then in verse 8, we have a phrase that we really don't understand. It says, and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. No commentator knows what hip and thigh means with a great blow, but, but I'm sure it didn't feel good and it resulted in many deaths. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom, which is about two miles or so from Bethlehem. Moving on now to verses 9 through 13. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. Now, please remember that Samson is from Dan, but Dan borders Judah. And in this particular case, uh, they would have access to knowing where Samson was. So now here come the Philistines. They're going to retaliate against the Jews. They come against Judah and they make a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah says, why have you come up against us? Like, like what have we done? Uh, they said, this is the Philistine said, we have come up to bind Samson and to do to him as he did to us. So we're looking eye for an eye here. Verse 11, then 3,000 men, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What in the world are you doing? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have, I have I done to them. In other words, I, I'm not going to apologize for this. I was just getting even. Verse 12. And they said to him, We've come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Don't you do it. Verse 13, they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. I think it is very sad here. Very sad that it is the men of Judah are the ones that are arresting and handcuffing 
Samson and turning him over. Verses 14 through 16. When he came up to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, just like the, remember the, the, the lion came roaring at him. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, not an old, brittle, uh, rotted one, but a donkey that had perhaps newly died so the, the bone would be stronger, it would not be as brittle. And he put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Look, it doesn't matter how brittle or how strong that jawbone was. This is, this is supernatural that 1,000 people would die by you just having the jawbone of a donkey in your hand. And now here comes Samson with riddle number three or with poem number three. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. Fresh jawbone, not a dry one, not a brittle one. Verse 17, as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. He didn't need it anymore. And that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. So literally the hill or the mountain of the donkey, of the jawbone. Verse 18, and he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted me this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I, now, shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi. Water came out from it. When he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Now, therefore, the name of it was called in Hakor. Uh, it is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Something to note here is that there was another person in the Bible who was thirsty. And this person uh, mentioned his thirst, and that is Jesus upon the cross, and no sustenance was brought to him because he was dying for our sins. So we see Samson now praying to the Lord. Remember last time we were together in chapter 13 when we talked about the cycle of the judges. It, it stopped shy of the people crying out to God. But now we have Samson as one who does pray and his prayer is answered and the water is brought to him and it is refreshing. And the author writes that that spring is still visible to the day that the book, when the book of Judges was written. Notice it was in the days of the Philistines, so it was not a complete deliverance over the Philistines, but what he was able to do, at least in part for a 20-year period, was to protect the people of God. Um, so that is the text, which now brings us to our two main points. Point number one, the themes, and point number two, the schemes. So I have 
given you a reading of the text. Now what I would like to do is I would like to explain the text. Point number one, the themes. Anytime in scripture you see something repeated or reoccurring, know that that is intentional. It is not accidental. The author is doing that on purpose and it is meaningful. Well, in these two chapters, they are filled with duplicated content. Let me give you seven examples of reoccurring themes in these two chapters. Number one, did you happen to notice how many animals played a key role in the Samson saga? You have lion, you have a lion, bees, a goat, foxes, and a dead donkey. Samson could never get a job at the Humane Society. He is the anti-Adam. His contact with animals is connected to defilement, revenge, destruction, and violence. And that is not what God had in mind when he gave man dominion over the animal kingdom. Now, spoiler alert, next week when we look at chapter 16, this Samson who has used so many animals is going to have his eyes gouged out. And when he, he when that does happen, he himself will be doing the work of an ox grinding at the mill. He used so many animals, eventually he's going to become like an animal. Did you see that reoccurring theme? Number two, did you see the repeated use of poems? Samson uses three of them. And in English, it is impossible to recreate the intended cleverness of these poems because they were originally written and spoken in Hebrew. But I just want to say, as I have studied these poems this week, as the commentators have talked about them, um, the smart guys say that, that the, these poems have a lot of sounds and a lot of thoughts which match and rhyme and are very clever. I, I, I want you to notice that Samson is a real Bob Dylan. It, and, and he is combined with like the Riddler from Batman or Rumpelstiltskin that wants to put out uh, uh, word games. He Not only is he a, a strong man, but he is a prolific, a prolific lyricist. Did you see that? Three poems. Nobody else in the book of Judges is just going around throwing out songs and poems. Number three, did you notice the repeated use of fire? The 30 groomsmen threatened to burn his wife and his father-in-law with fire. Samson uses 300 foxes to burn the grain with fire. And then the people... The Philistines did burn his wife and his father-in-law with fire. And then the imagery of how the ropes or the handcuffs came off of him in chapter 15, verse 14, was that it was flax that has caught fire. There's a repeated use of fire in this. Did you see this? Every week I tell you that the book of Judges is rough. It doesn't get much rougher than fire. Number four. Did you notice the repeated use of abnormally large round numbers? It's crazy how big the numbers are and how round the numbers are. 30 groomsmen, 300 foxes, 
3,000 soldiers from Judah, 1,000 Philistine soldiers killed by one man with, with a jawbone of a donkey. And next week, we're going to see in chapter 16 that he is going to kill 3,000 Philistines who are looking down upon him in the temple of Dagon. Now, I do not believe that these numbers are symbolic. I don't, I don't believe that they hold some sort of a spiritual meaning that we are to unlock. Also, I do not believe that these numbers are exact nor do I believe that the author intends them to be read as exact numbers. I believe that these events happened. I believe that they are supernatural. I believe that the only explanation as to how they could happen was the unique power of God upon Samson, enabling him to do something that no one else could do. But at the same time, I do not think that the author intends for the reader to literally interpret these numbers as precise. Like there were, well, here were 999 soldiers. Here comes the thousandth guy. Now we can get started. No, I think that these numbers are rounded off, but I just think it is unusual that there are so many large rounded off numbers. Did you see that pattern? Number five. Did you notice the repeated use of a downward direction? Did you notice the number of times that it says down? Follow. Let's do a little Bible study. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. Chapter 14, verse 5. The same thing is said of Samson with his mom and his dad. 14.7. He went down and talked with the woman. 14.10, his father went down to the woman. 14.19, he went down to Ashkelon. 15.8, he went down and stayed at the cleft of the rock. 15.11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock. And the trajectory of the story, which is just down, 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 matches the state of and the morality of Samson's life and character. Down, 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 worse, worse, worse. Please do not look at Samson as an example to follow. You know, I think one of the hardest things about preaching Samson, uh, number one, is that you're looking at him as one of the judges, and he is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as being a man of great faith, and on a couple of occasions, he did show great faith. But generally speaking, you have a really hard time when you read the actual story of this guy, and you say, do as he has done. You do not want to be like him. Another problem that I think that we have with Samson is we miss what is happening here because the only thing that we concentrate on is his great strength, and that's the thing that children learn about in children's Bible stories about Samson, which I think is really unfortunate because the story of Samson and the narratives about Samson are really not about Samson or what Samson does because what he does is go from bad to worse, down, down, down. He, he doesn't care. He does what he wants. He does what is right in his own eyes. Don't be looking at him. The story of Samson as I told you, is 
unlocked, the key to understanding it, is unlocked back in chapter 14, verse 4. It's about what God is doing through these events, not in the character of Samson, but the author makes it clear that he gets worse and worse and worse, down and down and down. Number six, another repeated theme in the chapter is that of secrets. Secrets. Did you notice all of the secrets in this story? First of all, verse 4 of chapter 14, God is keeping secret what he is doing in connecting Samson with this woman in Timnah. And then in verse 6, there is the secret of him killing the lion, which he tells no one about. And then in verse 9, there is the secret of where the honey comes from, which he doesn't tell anyone about. And then there is the secret of the riddle that he gives his groomman. And then there is groomsman. And then there is the secret of his wife going behind his back and telling the groomsman. And then there, in a very real sense, is the secret of the ropes which were used to bind him by the 3,000 soldiers of Judah so that he could give the illusion to the 1,000 Philistine soldiers that he was actually securely bound. And the deception is going to continue in chapter 16 with Samson and Delilah and their cat and mouse game. And then you're going to see the ultimate deception or secret of Samson when he says to the little boy, and I don't know what the little boy was thinking, hey, just take me to two load-bearing walls and let me put my hands on this. Like, sure, mister, why do you need that? Just need to rest. Don't worry, son. There is deception and, 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 and secrets all over this. Samson is a man of practical jokes, and for that, I admire him. And he lives amongst the people of practical jokes. Except none of his jokes are funny, and every time the consequences are massive. Did you notice that pattern? The pattern of secrecy, or trickery, or deception. And then number seven, and finally, and I think this is the most fascinating, repetitive feature of the passage, and that is that of the cycle of the judges, or should I say the cycle of the judge. And it's not contained within these two chapters that I read today. It's not even in the full narrative of chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, but it is the entire book of Judges. Remember, every week, I tell you, the book of Judges is repetitive. There is the cycle in Israel of sin and suffering and supplication and salvation and solace and then sin and so forth and so on. Well, this pattern is at play with Samson, but not as a nation, but as an individual. Remember, back in chapter 13, God blesses Israel. They fall into sin. God sends them an oppressor, and then it ends. Nobody then in Israel is crying out to God. The cycle ends. But when you look at Samson, Samson proper the cycle is going on, but not with a nation, but now with an individual. Notice, he is a real man who did real things, and those things were supernatural. But more important than the power and the supernatural strength of Samson, I want you to see Samson is Israel, and Israel needs a savior. Let's look at the comparisons. 
Samson is a man who is unusually blessed. God is unusually kind to him, just as God blessed Israel. And Samson, like Israel, forgets God and is very arrogant, and Samson doesn't care. He's like Israel in that he feels very comfortable mingling among the Philistines, mingling among the Gentiles. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes in Israel, and that includes Samson. Samson does not value, nor does he obey the Nazarite vow. Likewise, Israel feels no obligation whatsoever to keep the covenant of God. Israel suffers at the hands of the Gentiles who were living in the land of Canaan, even as Samson does at the hands of the Philistines. Israel repeatedly prays to God for help, and God hears their prayer and answers. Twice, once in chapter 15 for the water, and then again for his eyes in chapter 16, Samson prays to God, and God gives him deliverance. God gives rest or solace to Israel. God gives rest or refreshment to Samson when he gives him the water to drink. And then when he gives him rest at the end of 16, when he is buried and has his eternal rest in heaven. You see, God usually would raise up a judge and the judge would then in turn raise up an army. But in the case of Samson, Samson is the army. He is a one-man wrecking crew. Do you see the parallels between Samson and the cycle of the judges? Are you following this? Samson is a microcosm of Israel. And Israel does not reflect the glory of God with covenant faithfulness, and neither does Samson. Both Israel and Samson in their cycles tell us that there is a need for a better, for a good, for a faithful servant of God. And that is not Israel, and that is not Samson, but that is Jesus. Samson and Israel show us our need for a Savior. So, I see these seven repeated themes. There are probably more. Animals, poems, fire, numbers, direction, secrets, and the cycle of the judges. Now, these are not only fascinating stories, but please know, and I tell you every week, the book of Judges is rhetorical. This is high-quality, complex literature, and we see that in the number of recurring themes, which brings us to our last point Number two, the schemes, the schemes. In other words, what is everybody up to here? What is everybody's motive? Why are they doing what they are doing? And it is fascinating. If you look at every individual, they all have a different motive. Let's follow it. And it's pretty straightforward. Samson's parents tell him, don't marry that girl. What was their motive? They were motivated to keep their son from the wicked influence of the enemy, the Philistines. That is a really good motive. Samson, what was he motivated by? Well, he was motivated by lust. Maybe you could call it love, but probably not. If we really want to give him the benefit of the doubt, we can say it's love. But probably this guy is motivated by lust, doing that which was right 
in his own eyes, get her for me. The groomsmen, what is their motive? Well, they're motivated by greed. They don't want to give up their clothes. His wife, what was she motivated by? She was motivated by self-preservation. If I do not betray my husband, then I will burn and so will my entire household. Samson, once again, is motivated by anger when he kills the 30 Philistines at Ashkelon in order to fit the clothing order. His father-in-law is motivated by shame. And this is an important one. So he marries off his daughter to his best man. There's another motive. It's the motive of Samson when he goes into a rage and he uses the foxes to burn the food. Which, which precipitates the Philistines burning his wife and his father-in-law out of revenge, which motivates Samson to retaliate, which is still another motive, which moves the Philistines in turn to employ the help of Judah, who should be supporting Samson, but instead they arrest Samson. Why does the tribe of Judah do this? The tribe of Judah goes after Samson and has him arrested because they are fearful of the Philistines. They do what they believe to be is expedient rather than trusting the Lord. So they capture Samson, and that is really sad. And of course, you have the motive of the 1,000 Philistines who tell the 3,000 soldiers of Judah to arrest Samson and to bring them to him why do they do that? Well, they do that because they want to get even with him. And then why does Samson kill the 1,000 Philistines? Well, he does it because that is an act of war. That's what you do in a war is you kill people. You put it all together, and it is mind-blowing. Godliness, love, lust, greed, shame, rage, revenge, expediency, self-defense, war. All human emotions, which we have which we all understand, and most of which we have experienced. And all of them, watch this, are thrown into a blender and mixed up. To what end and for what purpose? In other words, was there a reason for all of this? And the answer is yes. Chapter 14, verse 4. I told you it was the most important verse in the entire text. 14, 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. God has a design in all of this, and that is to get the enemies of God. Each character in the drama read their lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. All of them were acting freely. All of them were acting sinfully, except for Samson's parents. None of them were aware that God had written the script. They were acting unwittingly. And God had a goal in all of it. And his goal was that the oppressive enemies of his people, the Philistines, would be defeated and that his people would be delivered. And through the schemes and motives and planning and actions of sinful men, God accomplished his goal. And he always does. And he always does. You see, coming into Passion Week, 
There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of different motives which were at play. Uh, The Sanhedrin were envious of Christ, and Judas was greedy for money, and Pilate wanted to please Caesar, and the Roman soldiers were simply doing their job, and Satan hated Christ and wanted him silenced and dead. And they all get together with different motives and acted freely, yet unwittingly, to bring about the one central event which would bring the greatest amount of glory to God, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection. Listen to how Peter puts it on the day of Pentecost when preaching to the people who killed Jesus, to the Jews. Acts 2.23. And this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wait a minute. Is it God that is at work or was it the evil people who killed Jesus that are at work? And the answer is yes. This was the plan of God, and this was your free action. You put them together, and what do you have? Jesus on the cross, paying for our sins, and bringing about the greatest thing that ever could happen. And none of them knew that they were playing right into God's hands. For he, the sovereign God, was looking for an opportunity to save his people from their sins and to destroy their enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Samson's father-in-law did not understand that his seemingly cultural innocent act of giving his daughter to the best man would start a chain reaction which would result in the deaths of thousands of God's enemies and bring deliverance to God's people, the Jews. And likewise, Judas had absolutely no stinking idea that his one act of betrayal a kiss in a garden would start a chain reaction which would put Jesus on the cross and pay for the sins of God's elect and bring Jesus ultimately to the exalted place of reigning at God's right hand enthroned as the king of heaven forever. Book of Judges is filled with messed up people in a stinking messed up society. And if you isolate any one person or group or motive, you can conclude this is random. This is random and rancid. It's out of control. This is universal anarchy. And the same thing is true of our society, our government, our culture our education system, our hearts, our families, our lives, our motives, our decisions. You put blinders on any one area of life and you isolate it and you look at it and you study it and you will conclude that God has lost control and that he does not know what he is doing. However, when you remove the blinders, and you get in your Romans 828 helicopter and you lift off and you see the panorama of everything that God is doing throughout the ages, you will look at that and you will say, aha, he is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. He is using fear and 
lust and greed and anger and shame and revenge and rage and even a crucifixion to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. Which is why it is important when you read scripture to see the big picture. And that is why it is important when you interpret life to see it the same way. You see, man makes free choices and schemes and chooses and decides and acts, but God is using every one of those choices to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 16.9 in the New King James Version says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Make your plans. Make the best ones you can. Make plans which are in accord with God's word. But just know this, at the end of the day, every single thing that you think and plan and do and decide is going to be used by God and is a part of his large plan to bring glory to himself and good to his people. So we've read the text. We've highlighted some major themes. We have seen the beautiful tapestry of a variety of schemes that God uses to accomplish his purposes. And next week, we get to see Samson die in chapter 16. But I don't know how you have like enjoyed this sermon. I don't think that sermons are necessarily designed to be enjoyed. But I can tell you, I myself have really enjoyed studying this. And this conclusion gives me great joy in our God that whatever happens, he knows what he's doing and he is in control. And isn't it wonderful to know that not only does he know what he's doing, but he loves us. He loves us. He's looking out for our good. Father in heaven, we thank you for your scriptures. Oh, they are so beautiful. And your son is so beautiful. We glorify him. We lift him up. We magnify him. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.